The following was produced by Curious Arts. introduce you to uh, Jules Gray of Hop Hideout. Hello, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. If, I, if I'm stumbling over my words, it's just that we've been chatting beforehand and I'm, I've got the giggles, which is probably a bad thing to start with, but I have, apologies for that because Jules has just been making me laugh about various <laughs> houses she's been looking at. Could be worse, to it, be fair, it, but it, yeah, it could giggles be, is a good thing. Yeah, we're going to go with giggles because yeah. we don't want to tell anything. You know, this, this is not a, um, a podcast for... I don't know what I'm talking about now, but <laughs> anyway, this, this episode is actually all about beer and a rather remarkable gentleman that came into Hop Hideout uh, a little while back, but I'm not going to tell you anymore, partly because I've got the giggles and I'm rambling. I'm going to leave it to Jules, uh, who's here in the studio with me, because you've just heard her, that's obvious. So Jules, um, tell us what we're about to listen to. So we invited uh, a guy called Roger Protz, who's one of the world's world's leading beer writers actually to the sort of an intimate event so I'm from a little beer shop business called Hop Hideout that's been going uh, for about six years now actually we just celebrated our sixth birthday recently and we've collaborated alongside our retail neighbours in commune so where you guys Curious Arts are living, housed, breathing, um, all of those things, giggling, <laughs> giggling, yeah. giggling a lot. Um, we're actually downstairs in commune sort of part of this big castle house um site that wants to house the co-op and yeah. lots of other businesses i guess i mean castle house is a, is a wonderfully iconic building to the people of sheffield so it's lovely to see it being used in the way that it's being used yeah no and, and i get i actually get people visiting hop on a regular basis and sort of sharing their stories about that which is wonderful to hear so uh, we've been working along with La Bibliothèque, who is the other retail neighbour in Commune downstairs in the food hall. And we've been uh, putting, well, this was the event that we're going to go into is the first one that we put on as part of a collaborative beer and book club that we've sort of started together called The Moon Underwater. Um, and we're sort of trying to fuse all of the things that we love as people and our customers love. So that's beer, that's reading, um, arts, music, culture. When the opportunity came up to invite Roger Potts, uh, because he was in Sheffield actually doing a beer event at a festival nearby, I sort of jumped at the chance. I've met Roger over the years, actually, because he's done quite a few things for Sheffield Beer Week, which I'm organiser of. And he's written, you know, he's, I mean, he's one of the world's most loved and known beer writers currently. So he's authored more than 20 books on beer, including classics like 300 Beers to Try Before You Die, which is one of the sort of biggest selling books uh, on the subject. But he's done all sorts, uh, World Guide to Beer. I mean, he's, he's written the Camera Good Beer Guide for being the editor of that for uh, 10, 20 years. Um, I mean, he's only recently retired on that project. So he's a, he's a real living legend, to be honest. You know, he's seen the beer world change from you know, the 60s to sort of 
current modern day scene. So it's, for me, it's to hear some of his stories and not just about beer, but about his career, how he got into writing. Um, you know, it's just really interesting. So that's kind of part of why we put on the podcast, just to scratch the surface a little more behind behind him and hear about kind of his uh, wealth of knowledge around the beer scene and more. So, I mean, I've got loads of other questions I could ask at this point in time, but rather than put this... Uh, put all of this wonderful stuff off because uh, I got to the event and it was charming to say the least. I mean, the f you, what you say about Roger is exactly right. Uh, a bloke that really captivated the audience. So without further ado, I'm going to point at our producer, Joe, who sat to my left. Shall we both point to them together? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Joe, play the stuff. Brilliant. So... Um Amazing to see you all. Thanks for coming down to Commune today. Uh, I want to really welcome you all to this uh, launch of the collaborative event by uh, myself, Hop Hideout, Beer Shop and La Biblioteca bookstore that we're sat in today. As retail neighbours in this uh, new wonderful food hall space in Commune uh, in Sheffield City Centre, we're excited to be working more closely together, especially as uh, me and Alex were both genuinely beer and book nerds. Maybe like yourselves, to be honest. Um, so this event kicks off our new monthly subscription club, the Moon Underwater Beer and Book Club. And yes, that is a George Orwell reference. <laughs> um, huge thanks to Curious Arts and Cornucopia Radio for supporting and aiding this podcast recording today. So now on to our special invited guest. As one of the world's leading beer writers, historians, lecturers, and all-round nice fellows... <laughs> Author of over 20 books on beer, including 300 Beers to Try Before You Die, one of the biggest selling books on the subject, in addition to the ultimate encyclopedia of beer and the world's guide to beer, anything beer related, basically. <laughs> He's also edited more than 20 editions of the annual Camera Good Beer Guide. His more recent project charts the history of India Pale Ales entitled IPA, A Legend in Our Time. We welcome Roger Protz. So we're going to be doing a little Q&A and then at the end we'll open up obviously uh, questions up to yourselves. Um, so just kind of a, a little bit discovering a bit more that this In Conversation series is kind of more about the people. Um, I know Roger does many, many beer tastings and often talks probably more about beer than, than himself. <laughs> so this is a little bit more kind of discovering a bit about uh, Roger. So Roger, what what... Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and if and <coughs> what impact that had on your beer journey? Yeah, I grew up in East London in East Ham. You can guess which football team I support. <laughs> um, one of my earliest memories was an enormous billboard next to the old West Ham ground and it was advertising Truman's Best Bitter and it had a cartoon version of Long John Silver with the parrot on his shoulder and a crutch and he was holding a pint of beer, and the slogan was, there are more hops in Ben Truman. And that intrigued me because every September when I went back to school, there'd always be a few children missing because they'd gone hop picking oh. with their parents. And I didn't go, which is a great sadness because you mentioned George Orwell. You read George Orwell's descriptions of hop picking. It wasn't much fun, I don't think, but it was a hell of an experience. But... Uh, my parents were what you might call posh working class and hot picking was a bit beneath them, so we didn't go. And they both had jobs anyway. But uh, near me was the Charrington Brewery in the Mile End Road. Um, 
and my first beer I ever drank was Charrington IPA so I got into IPAs very early <laughs> in life <laughs> and it was a great brewing area you had Truman's you had um, uh, Charrington's you had um, uh, Taylor Walker in Limehouse it was a great area for brewing it's hard to imagine in East London but apparently the water was very good for brewing so what, uh, what sort of, um, uh, round about what years are we talking there, Roger? We're talking there? of the 1950s, early 60s. Of course, all those breweries disappeared. Oh, there's the Mann's Brewery as well, famous for Mann's Brown Ale. All those breweries went in the great splurge of takeovers and mergers in the 60s and 70s. Mm. So was, I kind of wanted to know this really, was beer always your first and only passion? Um, <laughs> or if not, can you share your other interests and hobbies? Mm. I mean, if it has always been your one and only passion, what was it that enthralled you so much about beer? Ah. Well, my other passions were obviously football and cricket. I played cricket for many years. I played football at school, but uh, wasn't particularly good. They always stuck me in goal because I was tall, but I wasn't really a very good goalkeeper. <laughs> but I then played cricket for many, many years until my knees gave out. I was a wicket keeper and you can't keep wicket if your knees give out. Um, so I love football and cricket. <coughs> and I've also been a great reader. I just read and read and read. I'm a fantastic lover of books, both fact and fiction. Kind of leading on from that really is, how did you first get into writing about beer? Um, and what yeah. was your first paid, <laughs> paid beer job? Oh, crikey. Um, <laughs> I got into beer almost by accident. Uh, I was a journalist from the age of 16. I didn't go to university because people from my age and background didn't go to university. So started working in what was called Fleet Street, which used to be the center of the old newspaper industry in London. I worked for a magazine company. I then did two years national service when men between age 18 and 21 had to do army service for two years. Can you imagine that? And after that, um, decided to leave magazines and properly work for newspapers. So I went to work for the North London Press Group. From there, got a job on the Evening Standard in London, which was a lovely job because that was a, still is a very good newspaper. And I was there in the heart of Fleet Street with fantastic pubs like The Punch, where The Punch magazine was first launched and the old Cheshire Cheese, all these fantastic pubs. So I learned to love pubs and fantastic beer at that time. Um, and then in the 70s, I got a job as a part-time lecturer in journalism at the London College of Printing, which was very interesting, except there was a run on the pound in 1974 or five, and the Chancellor, Dennis Healy, sacked every part-time teacher in the country, including me. And um, there was a magazine at the time called Press Gazette, which listed every job going in the newspaper industry. Wow. So I was desperately reading this magazine for jobs. And there was a job going at the campaign for Real Ale, which was then very young. It was only started in 1971. But I'd heard about camera because a well-known journalist at the time called Richard Boston had a column in The Guardian every Saturday called Boston on Beer. And he wrote about camera. And I applied for the job. They wanted an assistant editor of publications. And the editor of publications was a man called Michael Hardman. And we'd both been on the Evening Standard at the same time. Oh, wow. But I was on the features desk and he was on the news desk. And we never actually <laughs> met. But I had the shortest interview in history. He said, um, 
you were evening standard, I was evening standard, you'll do, let's go to the pub. And, that <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, how it all started. It's <laughs> uh, a wonderful story. So my very so, yeah. to answer your question, Jules, <laughs> my very first article about beer was for What's Brewing, the Canberra newspaper. And I went to Adnams in Suffolk, which is still there, still one of my favourite breweries. But I went to Adnams via Ipswich, where there was a big brewery called Tolly Cobbold, which you will remember, but mm. younger people won't remember it. It was a giant brewery. It was the biggest brewery in Suffolk, wow. much bigger than Green King. But it had the misfortune to be taken over by very dodgy characters in a company called Brent Walker, run by the Walker brothers, who were former heavyweight boxers from, um. would you believe, West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> and they went out of business. They collapsed. And Tolly Cobbold collapsed as well, all very, very sad. The brewery building is still there as a listed building, but there's no, no brewing going on there anymore. Went on to Adnams and fell in love with Adnams beer, and they're still brewing great beers. And I think one of their most recent beers, Ghost Ship, is one of my favourite new, new beers. Lovely beer. I'm going to go off um, topic slightly just because I think it's quite poignant to ask you really at this point. Have you kind of got say one bit of advice for new younger writers maybe trying to get into beer writing in particular is there any kind of advice or one sort of thing that you could point them in that direction <laughs> yeah it's very tough very tough indeed because there's a lot of beer writers now when i started there was just really me and michael jackson that was it in this country there were obviously american beer writers but just two in this country and then Barry Pepper in Leeds started writing about beer but very very few beer writers now the Guild of Beer Writers which I formed in 1988 has about 200 members I think I think well it might even be up to 300 but yeah. it, I suppose it's exploded in terms of yeah. uh, not just writing but I guess oh, into yeah. a world of podcasting yeah, right. yeah. and um, yeah. marketing and events and kind yeah. of sort of this well, whole other right. um, social media era yeah. that obviously yeah. you know, I mean, is I'm new <coughs> in itself with technology. I'm very old-fashioned. I mean, you had to help me get onto Wi-Fi this morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I still, but I still, you did I still it remember you, writing on typewriters. <laughs> um, two years ago, I did a talk. It was during the Norwich City of Ale. Every year, Norwich has a City of Ale in May. And I was there with... Um, two friends, two fellow beer writers, Pete Brown and Adrian Tierney-Jones, and we did a gig at uh, Waterstones Bookshop in Norwich. They'd laid out every book on beer that they stocked, and I've never seen so many books in all my life by authors I'd never heard of, by publishers I'd never heard of. And I, I hate to say this, I think there are probably too many books about beer now because it's just swamped the market. So mm. I would say to aspiring beer writers, it's really tough to know what you can write about that mm. is new mm. and is, is fresh. But I would say definitely do blogs. That is the way to get into it, I think. But if you're going to write a blog about beer, don't go on and on. I read some of these blogs and you think, for goodness sake, get to the point. <laughs> they just go on thousands and thousands of words. Being an old journalist, I'm, to me, you want a good intro, a good nose to a story. Keep it tight, keep it short, and get to the point. Yeah. So, I mean, sort of what you're saying is kind of really think about the 
the piece that you're putting together, like yeah. you say, start, middle, finish, but also maybe have some individuality or some personality mm, yeah. and yes. maybe think about a different angle to exactly, the usual exactly. yeah, writing yeah. that you see. But I guess reading all of that writing mm. is a good start to then yeah. kind of find your place within yeah. that scene. Yeah, um, you've got to look for a new angle. That's the, yeah. that's the important thing. I mean, I looked in your fridge when I arrived and we were talking about saison. Now, when I first went to Belgium many years ago, I went to Dupont Brewery, which is the most famous brewer of Saison. Now, Saison is really a beer style which is confined to the French-speaking part of Belgium. The Dutch speakers part don't... I can think of one or two who make Saison, but it's not really a, a Dutch or a Flemish style. And Dupont Saison is a wonderful beer, isn't it? Beautiful beer. And it's good to see that style now developing and American and British brewers making Saison. So here's a tip to an aspiring beer writer. Go to Belgium, go to Wallonia, and immerse yourself in Saison and write about Saison. Oh, there you go. Yes. Challenge on the table. <laughs> yeah. um, so this one's a bit of a big question, to be honest. So I don't know. It's going to be a bit of a tough one. Um, with your beer and writing career spanning over 45 years, what are the top three pivotal moments in the beer industry? Let's just say UK, because I think obviously if oh. we go global, that's probably going to be a bit too big a question. Oh. Um, over that time that kind of stand out for you, so sort of top three in the UK beer scene. <clears throat> I would say one of them was going to a pub in Hyde, just outside Manchester. I was just starting work on the Good Beer Guide and the designer of the guide was in Manchester. So I'd gone up with a colleague to visit him and we stopped at the pub in Hyde, which was owned by Camera. In the early days of Camera, they ran six pubs, which was actually a very bad idea because if you're a consumer organization, you shouldn't really run pubs. And they learnt the lesson and got out of pubs very quickly. But I went to this Camera pub in Hyde and I had my first taste of Boddington's Bitter. And I refused to leave the pub because I didn't know that beer could be that wonderful. I thought Bodies was incredible. And of course, thanks to the big brewers, um, it's gone now. You can't get Draft Bonningtons. I think they may do it in cans somewhere, but you can't get the real beer anymore. And that was, that was a great beer moment for me. Also, that first taste of Charrington's IPA. I remember coming back from work in Fleet Street, getting off the train at Upton Park, and going with an old school friend to a pub not far from the football ground and having Charrington IPA. And that was a, a lovely beer, which, of course, was completely ruined by Bass. Bass took over the Charrington Brewery. Can you believe that the Charrington Brewery was producing 750,000 barrels of beer a year? And Charrington closed them down because all they wanted were the pubs. And Charrington's owned thousands of pubs. And Bass wanted to fill it with Carling Bloody Black Label. So, <laughs> so that was another, that, drinking that beer was another great moment. And that first trip to Adnams, that really opened my eyes to the fact that there are dozens and dozens of small regional breweries around the place, still loyal and true to traditional draft beer, making lovely beer. And also another great moment was going to Marston's in Burton-on-Trent and seeing the Burton Union system of fermentation. Mm. I don't know if you know about the Burton Unions, but that is fermentation inside giant wooden casks. And as the beer ferments, it gushes up in pipes into trays above the casks, where the trays hold back the yeast and the beer goes back into the casks. And that is the unique way of brewing beer in Burton-on-Trent. And it gives that wonderful character 
he gave it to Draft Bass. Where can you find Draft Bass these days? But it still gives it to mm. Marston's pedigree. And that, can I just say, Jules, that we're talking mm. about great beers. When I first started writing about beer, people would often ask me in interviews like this, what is your favourite beer? My answer was always Draft Bass, which I thought was an incredible beer. I got the new Good Beer Guide a couple of weeks ago, looked at the entries in London, and there are 300 pubs in the Good Beer Guide in London. There's just one pub in London that sells Draft Bass. Can you believe that? Mm. It used to be far and away the biggest selling premium cask beer in the country. Worth mm. 800,000 mm. barrels of beer a year. It's now owned by, guess who, AB InBev, mm. who have no interest in it whatsoever. And they have it brewed for them by Marston. So doing it very, very well indeed. And I went to this one pub on Kew Bridge Road, the Express Tavern. Outside it says Draft Bass over the top. And they've got the Bass Red Triangle mm, yeah. emblem. You go in, pint of Draft Bass, absolutely gorgeous beer. And what a tragedy it's been left to just decline and decline. I'm told by friends in Derby that lots of pubs in Derby sell it. I know in Stoke-on-Trent there's a lot of it as well, but mm. in most of the country you just can't find it anymore. With the wealth of books that you've written, including obviously the top-selling Biz to Try Before You Die series, and you've got your latest IPA release, um, would, I'd kind of, and um, we would like to know a bit more about the writing process and how <laughs> it works for you. I know obviously you're on a new um, book at the moment because you've been tweeting quite a lot about the regional family breweries yeah. uh, that you've been visiting. Um, so kind of from the inception of the idea through to the, the finished book, kind of can you talk us through that? And is there one particular book that you're most proud of and why? Oh, crikey. My working style is total chaos. <laughs> uh, fellow beer writer Jeff Evans said the first time he went to my office when I was based at Camera, he said he'd never seen a desk like it. It was piled high with books and bits of paper and um, books with uh, type scales and all manner of things. and he couldn't understand how I could possibly work like that. Jeff, on the other hand, is brilliantly organised because he writes the book of beer knowledge and he has to accumulate all these lists of the top beers and all the rest of it. So he, I admire somebody who's that well organised. I'm not. Um, but I get the work done. Um, as I write fact rather than fiction, I must say it's 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration. <laughs> um, so as with the Family Brewers book, did, did you come up with that idea or did yeah, a publishing company? that was company, my idea. Was... I saw that there were only 27 family brewers left in the country. Now, you will say there are lots of small craft breweries run by families. That's perfectly true. But this book is about the likes of Shepherd Neem, who opened in 1698, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. Other brewers who've been around since the 18th and 19th centuries. And to me, they are the backbone of cask beer. Now... We will probably discuss this morning, this afternoon, cask beer and craft beer. And there's a great place for craft, modern craft beer as far as I'm concerned. But my first love will always be cask beer, which is why, obviously, I got involved in, in camera. And to me, without those family brewers, the cask beer sector would virtually collapse overnight. So we've got to keep them going. We've got to love them and nurture them mm. and promote them. Because I think a lot of people don't realise that they're still around and still mm. brewing. I mean, I suppose beer. controversially, as we all know, uh, Green King oh. sold to a Hong Kong investment oh. Oh. or yeah. a company. I mean, yeah. um, 
it just yeah. seems um, something that we should really talk about with it, it being very recent. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are they still in the book? Do you yeah. talk about this in, in oh, the book? Well, uh, have you not written the chapter yet? Well, Green King are not really a family brewer because um, they're obviously owned by shareholders rather than the family. So right. they, they wouldn't have been in the book anyway. Fuller's would have been in the book because they are genuine. They were a genuine family mm. brewery. So this year we've lost Fuller's now owned by Asahi of Japan. But at least Asahi are brewers. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. They say they want to turn London Pride into an international brand, which fills me with horror, mm. because <laughs> that won't be a cask beer. It's going to be a keg beer flogged all around the world. I'm waiting to learn whether they're going to do their vintage ale this year, because we await the vintage ale like wine lovers await the new, the new uh, Burgundy, don't we, every year. Um, Green King is awful. They're now owned, because the shareholders agreed to the deal last week, for £27.5 billion. Pounds. They've sold the brewery and the pubs to a Hong Kong um, property company, as you say. Mm. Now, what do they want Green King for? They want them for the pubs, don't they? There are 2,500 pubs, hotels and restaurants. Are they going to asset strip them? If they do, they won't need a big brewery in Bury St Edmunds. So mm. we could be saying mm. farewell to... Green King's Brewery. Now, Green King's beers aren't the most popular beers amongst cast beer drinkers, but they have improved a lot in recent years. They've done a heritage series using an old strain of barley and old strains of hops, which are very, very good. Um, there's one called Yardbird, which I love because uh, being a jazz lover, I know that Yardbird was the nickname of Charlie Parker the great bebop musician of the 1950s, and that's a lovely beer. So they have improved the beers a lot. Not a great fan of their IPA, because obviously at 3.6, it's not an IPA by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. But it's a lovely traditional brewery, and to lose that would be a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So we just await, and you just yeah. wonder who's next. When Fuller's went in January, everybody said, who's next? The answer mm -hmm. is Green King. Now who is next? The rumors about Shepherd Neem, because they're very big. They're doing 200,000 barrels of beer down in Faversham. But I think the family are so committed, I'd be very surprised if they, if they were mm. to sell. I mean, this Marston's, on the other hand, are not, not really a family brewery, mm. but Marston's a traditional big, big regional brewery. They have very, very big debts, and you do wonder about them. Mm. Curious Arts. Welcome back. But back in the studios, myself uh, and Jules. Hello really scares me when you do that because it wasn't quite <laughs> i was just taking a breath and sort of um, just letting people know i'm here yeah well that's probably the right thing to do because mm -hmm. this is really about you and hop hide out and anyway um very quickly then just while we're taking a break from the the location stuff uh jules just tell us what, what's coming up now for hop hide out well we're into december now if i can say the word the c word christmas i'll say it in a funny way you, I was worried there for a minute. Big SpongeBob fan. Um, so I just thought I'd get that in there. Um, I watched so much SpongeBob. Oh, I love SpongeBob. My, my kids loved it when they were growing up, I, I, and I still do. I still watch SpongeBob. As a little side tangent, which I do all the time, but Tom J. Newell, who did some of the artwork for Hop Hideout, he's just brought out a SpongeBob SquarePants like vinyl toy with this vinyl toy company in Japan, why I think. It looks I amazing. It? I don't know. I need to find out. I retweeted it and then didn't look at the link, which I should do, really. 
I'm, I'm, I'll send it to you. Please. You can look at the link yeah, and I'll tell look me. look at the link and then not do anything <laughs> as well, probably. So sorry. So sorry. Who? Yes, go on. So, yeah, December, the season of giving, being nice to people, being kinder, remembering about just being generally frivolous, frolicking, Having festive. Fun. festive. Festive. How many F word. words can we think of? appropriate ones um, I'll keep quiet at this moment in time <laughs> we'll just make some up so, so, so anyway before we ramble in more the producer's now glaring <laughs> at me across the table I can feel his eyes burning so December into the I'll go back in yeah Christmas gift page we've got up at Hop Hideout so lots of things to uh, gift to people beer making kits that's a popular one at the moment because people kind of love making things and why not brew your own beer at home can I, can I quickly ask, because my dad did this many, many years ago, and, we, you know, and I'm, a, I'm an older man now, so, so we're going back well into the you know, black and white era, no doubt. My dad did this, and my mother, he did it once, and my mother banned him from doing it in the house ever since. Um, is it, it's not like that anymore, is it? I mean, it can be like that if you deviate from the recipe. If you follow the recipe in the kit, you should be fine. He, he had like something. It looked like a whiskey distilling thing you is see from the nineteen twenties. I don't think it was, which is probably why he got banned. It, you know, it, was, it almost like took up an entire room. I he might have been growing his own weed. I don't know about that, but, but it's not like it's because it's, it's th- these days it's more contained, isn't it? It's yeah, I mean the thing we've got is, which was why it's great. It's been put together by a, a couple who were home brewing in their tiny flat in Brooklyn so it's called the Brooklyn Brew Shop so their their thing was trying to brew small batches of beer in like a tiny space but make it work for them and they've collaborated with breweries to sort of uh, do clone recipes so for example you can buy the McKellar um, collaborative Brooklyn Brew Shop kit which means that you've got a recipe from this well-known um, credible uh brewery and they've done a couple to be honest they've got a few few out there but they've scaled it down so that you can do it in really small batches at home which personally I like because I when I start home brewing I uh, which a lot of people do I think you kind of buy the bigger buckets and you spend all this money on equipment and then you're not very good at the beginning and you make like 40 bottles of beer which most of it's not drinkable um or uh so then you you know you're left with these large quantities and and really the kind of when you start i think it's better to do it on smaller batches so that you can experiment and learn more and do more regular batches and you've only got like 10 to 15 bottles to get through each time so these kits for that i think are great i mean i've got one for myself and i still use the equipment now um and you just have to buy the ingredients recipes ongoing so you you get one recipe up front with the kit and then ongoing you can obviously buy buy your own uh, ingredients but there is a little homebrew shop in Sheffield if you they're quite good if you want to go and talk to them it's at Wood Seats um but yeah and, and is there some sort I saw on um on the listings the other day some sort of launch some coming up next week so. yeah so it's we've got it, well it's been quite spectacular to follow, to be honest. They've been, it's a couple based in uh, the Norfolk area and they've been building pretty much their own brewery in sort of this big old barn in the countryside. 
and it's been an ongoing story that they've been sharing on social media and so next week is the first time all of their beers which have been brewed on site in this um, bespoke built brewery in the countryside uh, are going to be released nationwide so we're the Sheffield I think there's there's us and the Rutland possibly pub which uh, which are hosting this bedrock launch from Duration Brewery so that launches on the general election day Mm -hmm. a good reason to go out and buy Mm. buy their beer go out and vote and then yeah and then down to hop hide out and have a have a, what's it called again? The, the so the brewery's called Duration, and it's their bedrock launch, so it's the first beers that are being brewed on-site at this uh, brand-spanking new facility, this new brew house that the, the couple have created that looks amazing. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's going to be quite a lively day, I think. Fantastic. So, so there you go, folks. Go vote and come down and drink beer. I like that idea. It's good, good. Shall we go back to, the, um, go back to, 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 to Roger? And the event in uh, downstairs in, in Commune, which the other day was uh, so good. So with the 24 editions of the Good Beer Guide under your belt, including early years from 1978, and then returning uh, and editing till t- 2017, I believe? 18, 18. 2018, yeah. sorry, Roger. Um, when, obviously, you then re- retired from that role. Um, how have you seen beer in the UK change? And, <laughs> and what do you think the future holds? And oh. what are the main <coughs> challenges? <coughs> Yeah, I wish I'd brought the very first edition of the guide. I, I love to show it, 1974 edition of the Good Beer Guide, which was about 60 pages. <laughs> there were, I think, 1,500 pubs in the guide, and there w- were 116 breweries, 116 breweries. There are now, of course, 2,500 breweries in this country. And a lot of those breweries back in the 70s were owned by the likes of Bass and Whitbread. And one of the early camera t-shirts said on the back the Whitbread Tour of Destruction and it listed all the breweries that Whitbread had bought and closed down. It was a terrible time. I mean camera seems a lot more rebellious when when you say it like that doesn't it? Yeah I mean Whitbread had the exchange brewery here and I remember this is the crazy logic of the big brewery industry. They spent 12 million pounds upgrading the exchange brewery and then they closed it two years later. They can do crazy things like that. Bass, Bass had two breweries in Sheffield. They've long gone. And we've seen terrible things. But what struck me about that very first good beer guide was that um, all the breweries listed made just two types of beer, mild and bitter. That was it. That was all. Perhaps a strong beer for Christmas, but no, nothing else. I mean, look at, the ch- look at the choice now. And I think beer writers can take pride from the fact that by writing and shouting, making a great fuss about beer, and writing about other beer styles from other countries. Look at the choice in this country mm. now. Mm. You mentioned IPA. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds of IPAs now. Mm. We have proper porters and stouts. There's a lot more to stout than just Guinness. We have proper um, uh, barley wines. One of the exciting things to me is to see the revival of aging beer in wood because mm. aging beer in wood gives a lovely complexity to beer. Uh, particularly if you age them in wine and whiskey barrels. Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, even like mixed fermentation in the UK. I mean, that's kind of a, a small scene that seems to be very intriguing and also growing yeah. uh, in consumer interest and obviously yeah. being driven by breweries even specialising. And that's that's yeah. hugely yeah. interesting to yeah. to watch grow as well. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and also the interest in the ingredients. I mean, back in the early days, people 
The first book I ever wrote about beer was called Pulling a Fast One, which I wrote in 1978. I actually wrote it in a week. Can you? <laughs> I couldn't do that now. <laughs> it takes me a good year to write a book, but it wasn't a very big book. But it was a campaigning book, attack attacking what was going on with the big brewers taking over and closing down breweries. And when I sent in the manuscript to the publisher, he phoned me and he said, I love the book. He said, it's great. He said, I didn't know book beer was made from barley. <laughs> he said, I thought beer was made from hops. And I think a lot of people, you don't know, you don't think that, but a lot of people out there probably do think that beer is made from hops because there's so much fuss about hops these yeah. days. But the, the basis of beer is multi-grain. You can't make beer without multi-grain. You can make beer without hops, actually. Mm. And for centuries in this country, beer was made without hops. Hops, of course, are wonderful. They add lovely aromas and bitterness and character to beer. But to make beer, brewers call it the soul of beer. You've got to use malted grain, usually malted barley, but you can obviously use wheat and rye and oats. And in Africa, they use um, other types of grain because barley doesn't grow in most parts of Africa. But you've got to use malted grain to make beer. And I think that... Um, one of the things that people don't know about in this country is how beer is made. I was saying to you before we started that I got a, an email this morning from Aldi, the supermarket chain, saying they're running a course which you can log into and download a course on how to appreciate wine. <laughs> and they say, we're doing this because most of our customers know nothing about wine. <laughs> well, why don't you do it for beer as well? Because beer is actually a much more complex drink than wine. Nothing against wine. I, I love wine, particularly French reds. <laughs> but um, to make wine, you crush grapes. You allow, you allow the nat natural yeast on the skin to ferment the sugars into alcohol. With mm. cider, you crush the apples. And again, you allow the natural yeast to turn the apple juice into cider. With beer, you're taking two totally different raw ingredients. Malted grain, which gives the biscuity character to beer and also produces the natural maltose sugar for fermentation and you're blending in hops which balance the sweetness of the grain with the bitterness of the hops so to me beer is a very very complex drink mm. and drinkers do not begin to comprehend that so do you think the future holds kind of more opportunity for not only writers but breweries maybe to share yeah. more in depth the process <coughs> and yeah. the ingredients and that's remember, obviously yeah. a positive thing in your opinion. Yeah, I remember a good 20 years ago when Whitbread was still brewing, they brewed an oyster stout, which was brewed for them by a brewery on the Isle of Man, the old Castletown brewery. And um, Whitbread put little leaflets on all their pubs in this country, which told you how the beer was made and why it was called oyster stout. There weren't really oysters in it, but they used the juice from the oysters during the copper boil with hops. And you see people going in and picking up these leaflets and reading them. And that's what people do. When you go to the pub, unless there's some awful giant screen showing something, um, people go there to read a paper or a book unless they're with friends. And so if there's a little booklet or a leaflet around, they'll, they'll read it. And I'd love to see brewers and pub companies doing more of that, informing people about what beer is, how beer is made, and what the different styles are. Mm. Why is stout black? How do you make black beer? Why is India Pale Ale so pale? Why is, why is lager even paler than India Pale Ale? How is proper lager brewed? Although most of the big brewers in this country wouldn't want to tell you how they <laughs> brew lager because it's nothing like proper lager. <laughs> 
just to finish on and sort of as a final question before I throw, a, throw a, the a questions open to the audience today. So in terms of writing and writers, are there any uh, that have over the years inspired you? And if so, who and why? Oh, well, <coughs> obvious answer, Michael Jackson, of course. Um, I'd just gone to work for camera in 1976 and um, I was beginning to grapple with how beer was made and to learn about cask conditioned beer, real ale and all the breweries in Britain of which there weren't very many then but nevertheless a lot of breweries to fathom out and suddenly this enormous book thumped on my desk a review copy of the World Guide to Beer by Michael Jackson and I suddenly I read this book and I thought good grief there are brewers in France. In France? <laughs> they don't make beer in France, do they? There are good beers in America. I thought Americans only made Budweiser. But you've, there weren't very many then, but there were a small number of craft breweries in America. Good beer in Australia. Good beer in what was then the old Soviet bloc. Michael actually got into places like Czechoslovakia, and we suddenly learnt about beers we couldn't get then, like the original Pale Pilsner Urquell, the first ever golden lager. And it just opened my eyes to the world of beer. So Michael was and remains really the great flag waver for beer writing and great beer. Today, crikey, as you say, 300 writers. Um, Pete Brown is fantastic. Um, I was rereading his Magic Brew at the weekend. A fantastic book. And his ability to research and winkle out information mm. is very, very impressive. Um, a lot of really good women beer writers now, which to me is a great joy because it used to be a very male-dominated uh, sector of, of writing. But now you've got Melissa Cole, Emma Inchu does broadcasting. About mm, yeah, beer. I think she's podcasting That's for, right, uh, for yeah. Ment Radio that yeah. she specialises in. And she's yeah. lovely. I went on a tour of some Scottish breweries with her earlier this year, and that was great. And she's a really lovely person. And Jane Payton and a lot of other really good women writers... Adrian Tierney-Jones, great friend of mine, even though he's an Arsenal supporter, um, <laughs> we get on extremely well. <laughs> I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, well, uh, lots of people, including yourself, but the Ad Adrian Star, because he comes from a bit of a musical background, so I think he used to write oh, yes. for maybe the NME, yeah. uh, Music Express, those types of um, publications. Mm. So his, his, the way he writes is quite lyrical and quite music-infused, mm. which I really appreciate as a music lover myself so I kind yeah. of like those little flourishes that you yeah. but that's the kind of personality of, of some uh, uniqueness I guess that writers can yeah. bring to the table yeah Matthew Curtis another very good yeah. writer yeah. brilliant right so I'm gonna um, ask some questions from the audience oh there we go if there was only one beer that you could drink for the rest of your life <laughs> which beer would it be you know what I really wanted to ask that question yeah. but thank you <laughs> You're supposed to say, which is your favourite beer? And the answer is, anyone you care to buy me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were talking about West Marlow when before the meeting started. Um, if, I, if I could only have one more beer before I go to the great saloon bar in the sky, it would be West Marlow Triple from one of the Trappist breweries in Belgium. Um, and that is a sensational beer. Um, it is 9.5% alcohol, so it's a good way to go, I think. <laughs> In this country, um, crikey, there are, I mentioned Draft Bass, which is very hard to find now. Amongst the family brewers, um, Taylor's Landlord, wonderful beer. Mm. I'll tell you a little anecdote about that in a minute. Um, 
St. Austell proper job is probably, to my mind, arguably the best IPA brewed in this country. But there's a lot of competition for that time. Oh, there is. Yeah. There is. <laughs> um, and again, Adnam's Ghost Ship I mentioned. And funnily enough, they're doing a low alcohol version of Ghost Ship. I was in a pub. I went to a little town in Essex earlier this year to write about the Waltham Abbey, to write about the pubs in Waltham Abbey. Finished up in a pub called the Woodbine. Lovely name for a pub, the Woodbine in Epping Forest. And the landlord recognised me, which was nice, and he said, have a beer. And I said, look, I've been to two pubs. I've got to drive home. I won't have any more alcohol. He said, have a ghost ship 0.5. I thought, oh, God, low alcohol beers. I remember, <laughs> I remember Calibre and all, all those awful beers. Mm. And this was delicious, and you wouldn't know it was a low alcohol beer. I mean, it is a great, it's a growing yeah. area, actually. Being within a food hall, I'm finding at Hop Hideout, it, our, one of our top five beers is Schneider Weiss, uh, no ah, alcohol. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, there's definitely yeah. for many reasons. And yeah. it's positive that breweries are responding, I think, to this. Yeah. Interesting, you've got breweries even like Cloudwater Manchester yeah. producing yep. a soda yes. um, <coughs> within the brewery. So that could be an interesting future. Yeah. They're not all good. Um, I went to a tasting of low alcohol beers during Norwich City of Ale, which Adrian Tierney Jones was doing. And we had some of the low alcohol beers from St. Peter's Brewery. And to me, they tasted like Ovaltine or Horlicks. Mm. I just didn't mm. like them at all. It's what brewers call wort. It's the sweet liquid before they ferment mm. it. There's a, there's a company in London called Small Beer, and they make some very, very good low alcohol beers. Mm. Although they're not that low they're sort of 2.8 right yeah but they would have been legal under american prohibition <laughs> um so we've got any more questions yeah, yeah. from the audience oh, down the front here uh just about the uh, the family brewers really um if there was one family brewer that has not existed for some time that you could bring back ah. which would it be oh. <laughs> it would be boddington's yeah <laughs> yeah um who else? Crikey. Um, poor old Toddy Cobbold, who had a reputation for really terrible beer. When I first went there, I was told that the head brewer at Tolly had a reputation for making beer using pasta flour and potato starch. What? <laughs> and his nickname <laughs> in the brewery was Mr. Pastry. <laughs> and then it changed ownership and they started to brew some nice beers. And Tolly Original was a nice beer. So I, I wouldn't... Because it's such a lovely brewery, listed brewery. I'd love to see that brewing again. Ironically, now we've got kind of this whole subsection of what people are calling pastry stouts. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's kind of actually uh, yeah. um, dessert-inspired yeah. beers and all the rest of it oh, coming yeah. out. It's just funny. It's fun, uh, You know, it's just funny just thinking about you sort of saying yeah. uh, <coughs> that initial thing. But anyway. There was a brewery in Marlow called Weathereds. Remember Weathereds? Yeah. No? Oh, right. I've got the... <laughs> <laughs> um, they were bought and closed down by good old Whitbread. Weathered's bitter was lovely, and when they closed the brewery, the beer was brewed for a while by local brewery to me, McMullins in in Hartford. And it just shows you can't move beers around from one place to another, just as you can't obviously grow French wines in another country. But even though they tried to match the water and the barley and the hops. It just didn't work. It wasn't the same beer. So Weather Ed's Bitter is another mm. one that I miss. I do think it's quite sad. I've got um, a Michael Jackson book uh, that I refer to a lot all the time. And um, within that, it sort of travels the world and you can go to other countries. And most of, 
you know, that high percentage of the breweries in Belgium and the other countries still exist. And you go to the UK section, you're like, that's not there anymore. That doesn't exist. And it's, you know, but I suppose in a positive way, there's been a huge growth in um, small yeah, micro yeah. or yeah. what people call in the craft beer sector. You know, we've got over 2000 in the UK yeah. now. Yeah. So, yes, I suppose breweries have gone, but mm. there are breweries in a <coughs> new scene and a new fervor, I guess, that's kind of replacing that. Obviously, it's mm. different, but yeah. Yeah. I think there is a kind of a positive to yeah. see that mm. um, growth and excitement. Yeah. It's just kind of oh, yeah. uh, interesting to see where that will another, go. Another m much missed brewery is Young's of London, of course. Michael used to say when he was away on a trip, the first thing he did when he got back was to go to his local Young's pub in Hammersmith and have a pint of Young's Bitter. Mm. And that was lovely beer. And they closed the brewery in 2006. Um, they matched the beers at Charles Wells in Bedford. And they didn't do a bad job of it. But again, you can't move beers from London to Bedford because everything is different. And now Charles Wells sold the brewery to Marston. So can you believe that <laughs> Young's Bitter from Wandsworth, South East London, is now brewed by Marston's? Mm. Crazy. Mm. Are there any more questions from the audience? Oh, one more. I'll start with a thank you. As uh, a, a man of the trade that's been in the trade since before the beer orders and, and owned a public house since 2001, uh, I remember we opened our doors 31st of May 2001, uh, ripped out all the the, the Whitbread kit, put, put brand new kit in and decided to start with a Nethergate Umber Ale. And when we decanted, all each three gallon of that four days later, because our little town of Worksop wasn't quite ready for something that had got coriander in it, <laughs> we did worry whether we were doing the right thing. My thank you to you is, and to your peers is that with all this beer writing, 19 years on, we can now sell goose, saison, sours, we can sell beers that have got the most peculiar of ingredients and sell them on the reputations that such beer writers are actually giving our customers the knowledge to order these beers. And it's a wonderful time to sell beer. We are in a, an era of pub closures, of pub takeovers, of brewery takeovers, and it is difficult, but from a perspective of a single landlord with one little pub, it's never been an easy sell for us. Microbreweries, beer writers and making our job a little bit easier than what it was 18 and 19 years ago and I thank you for that. <coughs> thank you for that. But my, um, quest my question oh, to you sorry. Roger is <laughs> with regard to uh, I mentioned being in the trade from around about the time of the beer orders um, and being quite an active camera member what is your opinion on the role of camera going forward? We are now in a situation where it's the biggest consumer group in the country, huge membership massive influence and beer pretty much in real ale form is on every bar that you walk into whether it be an eatery or whether it be a public house or a micropub uh, where do you see camera moving forward in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? <coughs> Crikey. It's uh, a good question to finish on isn't yeah, it? Yeah it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think the big battle for camera and for beer lovers in general is quality. It's not so much the difference between cask and craft beer I think that argument is pretty well done now because just about every beer festival I go to, including the Sheffield Beer Festival, has key keg or key cask beer as well as cask beer. Even my local one in St Albans had key keg beers this year, which I thought would never happen because their attitude was over our dead body, but they've seen the light because they know that if they're going to attract younger drinkers, they've got to have modern beers. I think 
whatever style of beer it is, it's all about quality because beer is so bloody expensive in this country. I was really annoyed by a piece in The Guardian. It had to be The Guardian, which was railing the other day against the price of wine in this country, saying, why is wine so expensive? Why is it taxed so heavily? Excuse me, most wine is imported. Most beer that we drink in this country is made in this country. And why is beer so expensive? Because with the exception of, the, of Finland, we are the most heavily taxed beer country in the European Union. And even though I hear Johnson's got a deal, even if we do leave the EU in the next few weeks, we're going to go on being one of the most expensive beer countries in Europe. And something has to be done about that. And Camera is arguing and other people are arguing that um, once we're out of the EU for good or for bad, the British government can have differential rates of duty for beer, which it can't do at the moment. And we are saying that uh, draft beer, not just cask beer, but all draft beer in pubs should have a lower rate of duty than beer that is sold to the off-trade. Sorry, Jules. <laughs> but, I do a bit of both, to be yeah, fair. So, yeah. But um, you've got to do something, because, for example, the pub around the corner from me in St Albans is an Ember Inn, part of Mitchell's and Butler's. You can get a pint of beer in there, almost London prices, £4, £4.50, over the road, there's a Tesco, which special offer, you can buy three bottles of St. Austell proper job or ghost ship for a fiver. How can pubs possibly compete with that? The answer is they can't. So something's got to be done about the price and the taxing of beer in this country. The other thing is quality. I went round to this particular pub of mine a few weeks ago. Pint of pedigree, please. Up it came, flat cloudy, no condition, undrinkable. I had to pour it away into a flower pot. Went back to the bar. I had a pint of Mad Squirrel IPA on keg, local brewer, lovely beer, in good condition. If you're going to pay that sort of price for a pint of beer, it's got to be reliable. Now, in the old days, the big brewers, we had many criticisms of the likes of Bass and Allied Breweries, but they did care about the quality of the beer in their pubs. I spent a day once with Allied Breweries quality control manager, went round pubs with him. If he found a cobweb or a dead fly in the cellar of a mm. pub, he gave the publican absolute hell. The pub coast couldn't care less about that. They just want to stuff their beers, their pubs with beer, get the punters in and get the punters out and make them pay top whack for the beer, regardless of the quality. And I think some pubs, and everybody says this now, some pubs have too many beers on the bar. Cast condition beer in particular needs a bit of loving care. You've got to cellar it for several days, and once you've tapped it, it's got to be served within two or three days before it oxidises. And that, that is the challenge, I think, for camera over the next 10, 15 years, is insisting with cast mark on better quality beer in pubs. Otherwise, people are just going to buy more and more supermarket beer. Mm. I mean, a, a sort of a, a point for me, from me, I think personally that, um, especially people in the independent sector, we're all we all work together. I think that's kind of we're, you know, you were thanking Roger and beer, you know people for writing about beer. I mean, I thank you for talking to people over the bar about great beer every single day, you and your staff. Um, and I, I mean, I do the same. People might come and, and buy a few beers to take home or or have a little drink whilst they're here at the food hall. But I'll always recommend, and I always get asked as well, where should we go for another drink? And, you know, I've got a list of great pubs that I know are selling superb 
quality beer and looking after it and I can say you know go here go here go here so we kind of all need to work together I think for me uh, as a scene and less kind of infighting which seems to be happening we need to kind of rise above that see the bigger picture and work together um, because I have seen quite a bit of infighting within the sort of micro or craft beer scene and I just think you know let's just work together instead really and we're not all <coughs> going to have the same opinions but that's fine let's just talk about it in a in a uh, objective um, reasonable mm. way and let's move on together really that's the thing for me mm. can I just say before we finish about camera that um, I get quite emotional about camera because look at the beer festival going on here people don't realize that that takes months and months of planning and it's done totally by volunteers. Nobody makes a penny out of doing this. There are at least a dozen beer festivals every month run by camera, culminating in the Great British Beer Festival. I wrote a piece in the Good Beer Guide a few years ago about beer festivals, and even I didn't know this, that if you're running, running a beer festival in June, you start planning in January, because mm -hmm. you've got to get health and safety support. You've got to organize the beers, the food, you can't put beers up if the stillages collapse because somebody could be killed. Never mm -hmm. happened because it's all done very, very carefully. But I think <coughs> cameras festivals give a shop window mm. for all brewers and you can get beers at the festivals which you can't get anywhere else. So I think that is a marvellous job that camera does. And they're just wonderful people. They're so friendly and lovely and work so incredibly hard. We know that not all of the 190,000 members are active. They just get... the join camera for their weather spoon vouchers which i'm opposed to as a matter of fact i wouldn't do that kind of thing but the hardcore activists are incredible people who've done so much to really save good beer in this country great well um we'll finish up on that uh, on that and thank you everyone for coming and roger for thank being you. here as well <laughs>
so I'm not very good at that. But yes, it is, it is. Let's just have some fun. Let's put a bit of sunshine in people's lives. Definitely. And talking about sunshine in people's lives, tell us what's coming up in 2020. 2020. I feel like I should say it like that. It seems like a big year, isn't it? If I th think back to my uh, younger self, even saying the word 2020, I mean... My, my kids are delighted. They're, gonna, they're, they're about to go into the 20s. <laughs> the 20s. The 20s. And I, to me, the 20s is, is, is all Charleston and, and Great Gatsby and all the rest of it, all that sort of stuff. So we're now entering the new 20s, and I'm, I hope it's the same. I wonder what. I wonder Apart from what. the Great Depression, that was that was in the twenties, I think. I can't remember. But yeah, you know prohibition. Prohibition. Mm, no, the we don't. Oh, yeah. yeah. Probably perhaps that's why my dad was brewing his own beer. I don't <laughs> know. But luckily, the temperance movement didn't really catch on in the UK, so that's good. Um, so, twenty twenty, I think some of the big things. I mean, obviously, January is a little bit quieter. We are, which I'm just kind of arranging at the moment, going to be doing more. Uh, beer and food and also natural wine and cider and food events so watch this space on those news to come very soon we're going to be working with some of the fantastic independent kitchens that are housed in commune that we share the food hall space with so that's going to be really exciting more kind of pairing flavors and and sharing that kind of uh, experience with people then big things really building up for March. So beginning of March, we host our independent craft beer festival in Sheffield up at the Abbeydale Picture House in the beautiful 1900s. Now, I think that was built in the 1920s. It's a random There you go, connection. folks. The 20s are going to be great. Uh, so at the beautiful Abbeydale uh, Cinema, uh, which is obviously been kind of lovingly restored, um, and it's a beautiful space for a beer festival, just have to say that. It's just so atmospheric. Uh, so that's the first weekend in March, Indie Beer Feast. There'll be about kind of just around 20 uh, breweries pouring beers. We're going to have natural wine. We've got cider. We've got the Girls Who Grind Coffee. They're an amazing coffee roaster that we did a collaboration with recently with Neptune Brewery, who's also going to be there. I'm kind of quite excited because we did a collaboration with Girls of Grand Coffee and Neptune for our sixth birthday at Hop Hideout. So we, uh, Girls of Grand Coffee, try and source coffee and use farms that have um, women in management roles or ownership roles, which in the countries that, the de that, that they work in isn't uh, a common thing. And it's all about empowering women in those countries and um, obviously that message back here in the UK as well. And we've been collaborating sort of digitally and on, on social media because we couldn't all be in the same place at the same time. So Indie Beer Feast will be the first time that we're all actually going to be in the same room together. So I'm quite excited to uh, to sort of see all of uh, all of the women and we're going to be pouring the three beers. So it's a three sort of series beer to uh, the same beer, which is an imperial coffee stout that we that Juliet Neptune brewed. It's been aging in barrels, so two different types of barrel. So at the festival, all three are going to be pouring alongside, which I think is quite an exciting thing for people to try. I'm just going to, I know there's other bits we're going to come to in a minute, but coffee stout? Yes. Because I love coffee. And you love stout? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, the two flavours work really well together. Because really? you can get, yeah, because you, you can get the fruitiness from, obviously it depends what sort of coffee beans you're using. Um, but, you know, the fruitiness of the coffee, you know, the malt that you'll find in a dark beer like a stout often has sort of chocolate notes. Um, 
often has, um, you know, sort of dark uh, chocolate or licorice or um, other flavours that really kind of meld well with the coffee notes. So you kind of get this real boost together. It works very nicely. You see, the thing that, that, that's exciting me about all of this is that when I was a student and I drank a lot of beer, unfortunately, and I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, to somebody <laughs> selling beer, oh, oh no, I think Joe, you probably cut en- me that out. You probably enjoyed, enjoyed <laughs> it at the time. Though. I did enjoy it. I, yeah. I, I'm, I look back with fond memories, but I drank a lot of beer, but it was always the cheap beer because I was a poor student. So since then, mm. it's like, well, my memories of beer from when I was young were always very... Um, Practical, mm. I think, is nicely saying. So yeah. now, when when I when I uh, you know I come to 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 to, to the hop hideout in an evening for a drink or whatever. Now, when I'm seeing all these different things, you really are challenging my perceptions, I suppose, of beer, but also the, the what's actually available. I oh think yeah, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I think the choice is amazing now. I mean, there's kind of over eighty recognised different beer styles. There's so much creativity, innovation. You know, to a point, brew- brewers have kind of ripped up the rule book and are really experimenting with their ingre- the four core ingredients. And then other things as well, uh, you know, coffee, um, tea, um, all sorts really, fruits. I mean, it's kind of just gone, gone well, exploded really in that realm of uh, experimentation and flavours. Well, I'm going to be there at the... Um at the event at the Abedale Picture House first week of March? Yes, yeah, so it's March? first week in March, Friday, Saturday. I think it's the 6th and 7th. I mean, Indie Beer Feast on social media and there's a website and everything. Obviously, tickets available at, at Hop Hideout. You can buy them online at Gigantic Tickets. And then that leads into, uh, it's kind of the opening event for Sheffield Beer Week. So Sheffield Beer Week is uh, Sheffield's annual celebration of beer. So it's all kind of an independent ethos, all about obviously showcasing the local, fantastic local breweries that we have here. So, I mean, in the city centre, there's about 20 to 25. In the Sheffield city region, that goes up to about 50. There was a 2016 beer report that was commissioned by the Sheffield University uh, that had beer writer Pete Brown actually uh, do research and write that. And, you know, Sheffield could be seen as sort of one of the Cascale um, city capitals of the country. Um, So, you know, there's some really exciting, vibrant um, and really proud sort of, you know, local pride in this industry and the people that are in it as well. And Sheffield Beer Week's about shining that light, but also kind of saying it's a global beer scene. You know, we are a community on a broader spectrum around the world. Um, And I think everyone in the beer industry and people not experience that, you know, when you go traveling, I've been on various holidays, you search out the beer bar, you know, the sort of craft beer or the independent beer bar, get chatting to people there. You know, you end up going to a different pub with those people that you've just met on that day. And you really bond over that sort of passion for, for, for beer, which is kind of the community element that's developed and what I really love about the industry. Well, and at that point, I'm going to say we were intending to do a very short uh, finishing little segment to say, hope you enjoyed the pod and enjoyed listening to Roger and... Uh, we'll come on down to Hop You know the out. bit that I really liked about the Roger yeah. uh, piece uh, interview was him just talking about his writing career, yeah. you know, how he got into that. And um, that that's the bit that I kind of really enjoyed as well, actually. So we were going to do a very short segment. We have 
not done a very short segment, so that's up to Joe, the producer, to work out how he fits it all in and the timings, etc. But that's not our problem, so we can all now just point at Joe again. <laughs> um, but it'd be great to sit down again closer to March, if that's okay with you, because I'd be love great, to know more yeah. about some of these range. Perhaps even have a live testing of beer, on which is bound to go horribly wrong in some shape or form <laughs> by the feel of it and i can feel joe glaring at me because he's got all this expensive equipment and wonderful equipment here and we're about to put beer on the table at the same time but anyway for now thank you very much jules mm. uh, i hope you everybody's enjoyed out there enjoyed the podcast because um it was th th this roger was an incredible man uh, both i think in the pod and off the pod and in the books that he's written and the way that he has such uh, depth of knowledge about his subject and, and a wonderful, wonderful uh, person as well. Yeah, and, and can I just add, he's working on uh, his next book at the moment because after the podcast, uh, he actually stayed at Hop Idaho and he was um, avidly typing away on, on his next book, which is all about kind of the family brewers in the UK. Um, so if you follow Roger at the moment, I think it is just at Roger Potts Beer, um, on Twitter and uh, obviously he runs his own website and blog um, that'll give you updates on his current project that he's working on. So without any further ado we're going to say goodbye. Say goodbye Jules. Goodbye. Excellent. We're <laughs> now going to point we are definitely going to point again at Joe. Say Pointing. goodbye Joe. Bye Joe. <laughs> Joe's, jo Joe's waving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Joe's waving because he hasn't got a microphone. We like it that way. Uh, <laughs> so I actually want to hear Joe talk. So do I. Yeah. He never talks. He does it all in interpretive dance. <laughs> and, and he's just made a gesture in interpretive dance to me, which means I have to say goodbye. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, Joe, Joe, play, do something, press a button, whatever it is that you do to say it's all over for now. See you again soon. Thank you.